the hold of Mesco. Good snap, good hold. And the kick is blocked. Appalachian State has stunned the college football world. One of the greatest upsets in sports history. The pitch. Swing a long one. We are going to game number seven. A game-winning home run. Pino steps into it. Pass is Welcome to The Score. Here's your host, Brett Wiseman. Oh my goodness, we are back. This is The Score with Brett Wiseman here on Tobacco Road Sports Radio. TobaccoRoadSportsRadio.com, WWBG 1470 AM Greensboro. We have got a lot to unpack. I've been away for a while, but... Really glad to be back here on Tobacco Road Sports Radio and uh, bringing you all my takes, whether they're hot, cold, whatever. But we're not going to waste a ton of time talking about where I've been or what I've done. We're going to jump right into it. <clears throat> Major League Baseball, the first half of the season is done. Second half of the season is underway. Uh, got underway yesterday. Uh, there is a lot to unpack there as well. Uh, when you look at the standings, there's a lot of surprises. When you look at the rule changes, they've really worked. Let's start, though, with the bases, the, the base sizes. Now, that's a rule change that a lot of people, whether you were in baseball or not, kind of looked at and said, what's the point of that? What's the point of changing the size of the bases? Well, here's the motive behind that. When you factor it in, combining it with the pitch clock, it gives teams more of an incentive and more of a chance to steal bases and be aggressive, and it would create more action on the base pass. It has done just that. To this point, when you look at the stats, 79.4% stolen base success rate across Major League Baseball. That's all 30 teams combined have almost 80% success rate stealing bases so far this season. And you guessed it, that is a record in Major League Baseball. It's a 4% jump from last year, but shatters the previous record, which I think was about 77%. So MLB's rule change has worked in that regard. Also, when you look at the pitch clock, last year at this time, or season overall, I should say, Last year's season overall, game times, three hours and three minutes average. This year, to this point, two hours and 39 minutes. That is a record low. Major League Baseball's whole objective to get younger fans into the game was to reduce the length of games and create more action. Now, the one rule change we haven't seen really make an impact yet has been the shift ban. But that's because a lot of teams have found ways around it. A lot of teams have brought in an outfielder to stand on the edge of the infield grass. The shift ban rule is that 
two infielders have to be on either side of second base and both of their feet have to be on the infield dirt. Now, there's been ways around that. Teams have, against a left-handed hitter, or or even a right-handed hitter like an Albert Pujols style hitter that might like to you know drive the ball right at the middle, right back through the box. A lot of teams have moved one of the middle infielders as close to second base as possible. A lot of other teams against right-handed pull hitters have moved the shortstop over, basically shadowing the third baseman. Or against left-handed hitters, they moved the second baseman over, basically shadowing the first baseman. Again, teams have found ways around it. That's why it hasn't really made that big of an impact quite yet. But the stolen bases and the pitch clock, or the base sizes and the pitch clock, uh, have made the biggest impact thus far to this point. And it's been the teams that have figured out how to utilize those rule changes that are the ones that are on the top of the standings. Now, one of my biggest concerns was that the pitch clock was going to take away from the quality of pitching because it was going to rush a lot of guys on the mound. That has not been the case. My other concern was that it was going to rush hitters. That has not been the case either. Team batting averages are up across the board. Team ERAs are lower than they've been in quite some time. And when you look at the overall landscape of Major League Baseball right now, Again, it's the teams that have found ways to utilize these rule changes to their advantage that are at the top of the standings. When you look at a team like the Miami Marlins, not a team a whole lot of people came into this season thinking were going to be a contender, especially when the Atlanta Braves are still on top of the NL East. Now, the Atlanta Braves have the best record in the National League, and when you look at the standings right now, an eight-game lead on the Miami Marlins. The Marlins have the second-best record in the National League, thanks in large part to a guy by the name of Luis Arise. Now, a lot of folks looked at the Marlins a little bit quizzically when they decided to move Jazz Chisholm Jr., their star second baseman and cover athlete of MLB The Show 23, the video game, when they decided to move him to center field. That gave Luis Arise a chance at second base. Arise has done nothing else but play spectacular defense and hit single upon single upon single and the occasional extra base hit. Needless to say, the guy's hitting like 380 plus right now and threatening, flirting with being the first player since Ted Williams famously did it in 1941 to hit for 400 or more in a single season. No one even knew who this guy was before the season started, but he along with Chisholm, along with guys like Jorge Soler, who was on that 2021 Braves World Series championship team, Joey Wendell, who's been a key piece to the Tampa Bay Rays the last couple of years, Garrett Cooper, Jacob Stallings behind the plate. A lot of guys are contributing for the Marlins offensively in a ballpark that usually does not cater to the home run ball. Look what the Marlins have done. They've taken advantage of these new rules And they have been running wild on the base pass using speed and taking advantage of the dimensions of their ballpark and using guys like Yuri Perez, top prospect who got called up, an absolute flamethrower who's uh, been great thus far in his handful of starts for the Marlins. Their ace, Sandy Alcantara, uh, has been nothing short of fantastic. He's a Cy Young candidate 
at this point. They've got depth in the starting rotation. They've got depth in the lineup, and they've got a bullpen, which, again, might have some unknowns in it, but their bullpen, when you look at it statistically, has been very, very good. You look at the flip side of the National League. The Los Angeles Dodgers, a lot of folks came into the year thinking they were going to run away with the NL West. The Padres, as always, came in with the talent and the high payroll that they have. A lot of people viewed them as maybe being a threat. I can almost guarantee you, and me being one of them, nobody had the Arizona Diamondbacks on their radar. They're top right now with the Los Angeles Dodgers for first place in the NL West. Nobody had that coming. One of the biggest reasons, again, they've taken advantage of the bigger base sizes. They have stolen a ton of bases. They have run wild on the base pass. A lot of first to third situational base running that they've done as well. And when you look at somebody like Corbin Carroll, who's got wheels on for days, uh, NL Rookie of the Year candidate, got called up towards the end of last year, maintained his rookie status into this year, and he's been nothing short of spectacular. They've got other young guns on around. Carson Kelly, uh, the backstop behind the plate, he's having a great season. Jake McCarthy's having a great campaign. Uh, and then you look at those guys, along with a, a few others, uh, mixed in with this. They've got a young core, and they've got a core of veteran position players that are combining uh, to make, give that perfect mix of youthful exuberance and veteran experience. You'll hear the term youth and speed a lot, maybe in hockey as well, but this is a Diamondbacks team that has the youth and speed, but they've also got the veteran experience to go along with it. You bring in a guy like Evan Longoria, who's got a wealth of postseason experience. He's been in Octobers with the Rays, uh, the San Francisco Giants. Uh, he brought a lot to the table for this Diamondbacks team, uh, and he basically, with his experience, uh, is an assistant manager to Terry Lavello, who I might add has done a whale of a job uh, being the bench boss uh, for the Arizona Diamondbacks. You look at a guy like Lourdes Gurriel Jr., who's having a, a pretty close to a career year uh, at this point. You look at a guy like Christian Walker, he's having a great go of it. Cattell Marte has become one of the best, if not the best, switch hitter in baseball right now. He's right up there with Jose Ramirez and Adley Rutschman, uh, Ozzy Albies as well as, as top switch hitters in baseball. He's in his mid-30s. He's having a renaissance. You'll look at the starting rotation for this Diamondback squad. Zach Gallen is heading it, and he is absolutely pitching his tail off. Again, another Cy Young candidate. You turn uh, to the other side of the ledger in the uh, in the American League. You look at the Texas Rangers. They were viewed as many to maybe be a wild card candidate as, at best. Well, they're on top of the ALS, and they've got a three-game lead on the defending World Series champion Houston Astros, thanks in large part to a guy like Bruce Bochy. Bruce Bochy brought in by the Texas Rangers uh, to manage the team this past offseason. This is a Rangers team that, as many know, has a high payroll, they bring in Corey Seager on that mega million dollar deal a couple years ago in free agency. They've got other high dollar free agents. They signed Jacob DeGrom in the offseason as well, although he's been hurt. The Rangers brass felt like they needed to bring someone in that was less of an analytical voice that they had before, <clears throat> excuse me, and more of a classical baseball style approach. 
Enter Bruce Bochy, who won multiple World Series championships with the San Francisco Giants in the mid-2010s. Remember that kind of period where everybody just assumed once you went into an even-numbered year that the San Francisco Giants were going to win the World Series? Yeah, Bruce Bochy was the manager for, for all that. 2012, 10, 2012, and 2014. You bring him in, automatically changes the culture completely. The Rangers don't play in a ballpark that necessarily suits good pitching, but it also doesn't necessarily suit great hitting. It becomes a hitter's ballpark when the roof is closed. It becomes a pitcher's park when the roof is open. Go figure. The dimensions are wide and they're all over the place. Again, this is a Rangers team that has taken full advantage of the rule changes. You look at guys like Adolis Garcia. You look at guys like Jonah Heim, another great switch hitter right now, who's uh, the catcher. Mitch Garver, who's the backup catcher, but he's been DHing because he's been swinging a hot stick all year. This is a Rangers team that's got depth in the pitching rotation as well. Uh, they've got Martin Perez. They've got John Gray, who's been uh, getting a renaissance of his own. So those are the good teams in Major League Baseball. Let's look at the bad teams. The teams that maybe you wouldn't expect to be bad at this point. This team right here. My team, the St. Louis Cardinals. Pretty clear I'm a Cardinals fan, right? Well, they suck. They're, they're terrible. It's pitiful. It's pitiful. We as Cardinal fans are not used to this. The St. Louis Cardinals, since the DeWitt family took ownership from the Bush family back in 1996 and hired Tony La Russa, the Cardinals have had three, count them, three losing seasons since 1996. 97, 2007, And 99. 2007, ironically, the year after they won the World Series. But, needless to say, Cardinals fans are not used to losing. This is also a team that draws 3 million fans a year inside Bush Stadium. When that many fans show up to your ballpark, you're expected to put a winning product out year after year. There's no sell-offs. There's no rebuilds with the St. Louis Cardinals. You're expected to compete year after year after year. The Cardinals have won one game in the National League Championship Series since 2014. One. That's also not very Cardinal-like. And when you came into the season, you saw a roster that was very, very talented. You saw pitching that you thought, it's, it's mediocre at best. It's not going to get the job done. But you look at the offense and you say, yeah, should be able to out-hit the lack of pitching. That hasn't necessarily happened. The pitching has been nothing short of just abysmal. Adam Wainwright came back for one more run. He's given up a lot more runs than I think he would have liked to at this point. Miles Michaelis and Jack Flaherty have really been the only consistently inconsistent pitchers so far for the St. Louis Cardinals. Jordan Montgomery as well. He's been really, really good. 
You look at the offense. Nolan Arenado, Paul Goldschmidt, they've kind of come on of late, but they didn't have great starts. If there's a new and interesting way to lose a baseball game, the St. Louis Cardinals are going to find a way to do it. They have the worst record in Major League Baseball right now in one-run games, thanks in large part to their bullpen, which has been anything short of reliable at this point. And when you have starting pitching that is anything short of reliable, you're going to need your bullpen and you're going to need your offense. If it's not one thing, it's another for this team. And it's really due in large part to the fact that the front office built a team bent on complacency. The front office has been complacent for years. They've been afraid to spend money in free agency. They've been afraid to be aggressive at the trade deadline. And now you have John Mazzaluk coming out and saying, oh, we're going to trade people because we built a terrible roster. All right, we've got to get in the break here. Uh, we're going to get to the NFL when we get back. Welcome back to The Score with Brett Wiseman here on TobaccoRoadSportsRadio.com. Welcome back to The Score with Brett Wiseman here at Tobacco Road Sports Radio, TobaccoRoadSportsRadio.com, WWBG 1470 AM Greensboro. We're here every Saturday morning right here on Tobacco Road Sports Radio and WWBG. Now, we're about, I guess, two and a half weeks at this point uh, from training camp in the National Football League. And there's, of course, been a lot of topsy-turviness in the National Football League. The Carolina Panthers, of course, drafted Bryce Young. That's the right decision. I said before the NFL draft that personally, I, any if, if the Panthers picked anyone else, I was going to personally drive anyone who wanted to riot outside Scott Fitterer's house to Charlotte on my own dime. The Panthers made the right choice of the draft. They have already handed Bryce Young the reins. That's also the right choice, I believe. You've got to surround him with enough talent, though. Trading up and losing DJ Moore didn't help, but you've got to feel like a pretty solid offensive line at this point. You feel like you've got a decent run game. Maybe it's not where you'd like it to be, but... You've got the pieces there on defense to where Bryce Young doesn't necessarily have to be a hands-offish game manager, but you've got enough pieces on defense to where Bryce Young doesn't have to wear the game on his shoulders. And I think that was one of the big keys for the Carolina Panthers in this offseason was We've got to give him enough protection, not, a, not just up front on the offensive line, but we've got to give him enough protection on the defensive side of the ball to where he doesn't have to try and outscore the other team. We've got to be able to have a defense that is going to be able to back him up. And that's what it looks like they have right now. 
when you look at the landscape of the NFC South, it's perfectly feasible that even whether it's Bryce Young or Andy Dalton that ends up starting for the Carolina Panthers, I don't think there's any chance in the world that Andy Dalton starts for the Carolina Panthers. There's one reason he's there, and that's to mentor Bryce Young. When he signed that contract, it might as well, it, maybe it was not in there verbatim, but you might as well put it in the contract verbatim. You are here to be a backup and mentor our number one pick. He signed the dotted line. That's what he agreed to. So, he knows that going in. This is the division in the NFC South where no one has any idea what anyone is going to bring to the table. You've got the Panthers with the rookie quarterback, the uncertainties around him, and they've got a great defense. You have the Tampa, the uh, Tampa list, Tampa Bay Buccaneers. No more Tom Brady. He's not coming back. We hope. So, the Buccaneers right now, Blaine Gabbert, your starting quarterback. Needless to say, the Buccaneers probably aren't going to be very good. They have Mike Evans. Yeah, that's fantastic. They've got good receivers and tight ends. It's great. That would be dependent on Blaine Gabbert, of all people, completing passes to his own team, not the other team. I can't sit here and tell you that I trust Blaine Gabbert to complete more than 10 passes to somebody wearing his colored jersey. That touchdown-to-interception ratio is going to be heavily, heavily negative. It's not going to be like, you know, Aaron Rodgers' TD interception ratio where it's like 29-6 to or something. It's going to be 6-29. to the Buccaneers are going to be terrible. Plain and simple. And until they go out there and convince me otherwise in a few months, uh, I'm going to stick to that. You look at the New Orleans Saints. They bring in David Carr. David Carr. Wow, that's his older brother. They bring in Derek Carr from the Raiders. Derek Carr needed a fresh start, period. Although, he said that he knew he wanted out from the Raiders when they made his wife cry. Derek, I hate to tell you, buddy, but if I played as absolutely god-awful as you did, my wife would cry too. A lot of people would cry if I played as badly as you did. Check the tape. You stunk! I don't know what else to tell you. Your wife's supposed to be supportive, yeah, but if I went out there and played that bad, I would cry from just having to have sat there and watched it as torture. You were throwing the ball to Devontae Adams. And half the time, you didn't even get it to him. It landed in the other colored jersey's lap. 
There aren't excuses for that. So he needed a fresh start. He got it. He goes to New Orleans. He's got some good offensive pieces around him. They've got a pretty solid defense. But again, we don't know which version of Derek Carr is going to show up. Just like with the Raiders. On a rare occasion, Derek Carr would go off. Seven times out of ten, he's stuck. We don't know which version of him is going to show up. We don't know if the off chance Derek Carr is going to show up every week. We can't trust that the same version of him is going to show up every week. We can't trust that the good version of him is going to show up every week. We can't trust that the bad version of him is going to show up every week. We can't trust what version of him shows up every week. Regardless of what defense he's going to end, he will play that said week. We don't know. Derek Carr is the biggest coin, one of the biggest coin tosses right now at the quarterback position in the National Football League. There's, there's no way to avoid that. There's no getting around that, period. You look at the Atlanta Falcons. There's a lot of question marks there as well. The NFC South, if you were to just write every division out on paper, don't even list teams for the NFC South. Just draw one big question mark, and everyone will know what division you're talking about. No one has any idea what's coming at division, and that's what's going to make it so much fun to watch come September. And it's going to be a lot of fun to see, once we get into training camp, how Derek Carr meshes, meshes with his new weapons. If Blaine Gabbert finds out a way to throw it to his own team, same goes for Derek Carr. Who the Falcons trot out at quarterback? If it's not Desmond Ritter, I think they're doing it wrong. And how much of a Bryce Young, how much of a rapport Bryce Young develops with his receiving core, how that team kind of gels together down in Spartanburg for training camp since, you know, they only got 25% of their practice facility done before it just got stopped being built. But that's another story for another time. Let's look at the NFC North. As you can see behind me, that Packers drapery there. I'm a Packers fan. I was named after Brett Favre. I wasn't given much of a choice at that point, but I wouldn't have it any other way. Aaron Rodgers is gone. Now, when I first started this show, I was a very staunch Aaron Rodgers defender. From what people said about him, felt that his talent backed it up, it didn't matter, yada, yada. We get to 2022. He's lost it. He's a lunatic. He also sucks at this point. Terrible year. Let me give you a, a brief overview of this 12VGB saga, so to speak. So, 2018, statistically down year for Aaron Rodgers. He says, Mike, he basically tells the organization, Mike McCarthy's play calling is stale. It sucks. He's right at that point. So, Packers say, all right, Mike, you won us a Super Bowl, but that was a really long time ago, and Aaron's done with you. Uh, and Aaron makes a lot of decisions, so you're done. Get out of here. So, Mike McCarthy's fired. Young, bright, offensive mind, Matt LaFleur, comes in from the Sean McVay tree of coaching, DM. Uh, 
where a lot of really good offensive minds have come from. Matt LaFleur comes in, doesn't completely turn the offense around, but for whatever reason, turns the defense around. For once, Aaron Rodgers has a defense behind him. That 10-3 win they had the first week of that season against the Bears was a message as to how good the defense was going to be that year. Packers went 13-3 and arguably were probably one of the worst 13-3 teams in NFL history. Skated through the divisional round of the playoffs, got to the NFC Championship game, and got absolutely obliterated in every single fashion by the San Francisco 49ers. Embarrassed. Aaron Rodgers? Kind of not really contemplating things at that point, but think he asked for a little bit more help offensively. Justin Jefferson is sitting there in the 2020 NFL draft. You don't take him. Instead, you draft Aaron Rodgers' replacement. That rubbed him the wrong way. Questioned a lot of people. Questioned me. But the Packers clearly have a model that they're following here. We need to look at the timeline. Rodgers, not happy. He's like, dude, what? Really? So he goes out and wins MVP. Haha, take that. He still loses in the NFC Championship game to Tom Brady. So he comes back with, all right, I won MVP. I put up all these numbers, all these record numbers. I'm going to list them out for you because I'm arrogant. Just so you know what they are. I I need some help here or I'm not coming back. Lo and behold, he comes back. When the, Then the whole vaccine thing happens, but that's another story. Wins another MVP. Comes back this past summer. Same thing. I need more help. Eventually, we get to the point where the Packers refused to go to London for the longest time because they didn't want to give up a home game. This time, they're like, all right, fine. We'll go to London. We'll get it out of the way. Aaron Rodgers goes to London. He breaks his thumb against the Giants. And the rest of the season, he's absolute dog dog rot. He's terrible. I didn't need any more proof to tell me that Jordan Love was ready than when he carved up the soon-to-be NFC Championship defense in five plays. Threw a quick slant to Christian Watson. Threw a bullet to Christian Watson, and he took off. That was all the proof I needed the kid was ready. The Packers, as I said, are following a model. Aaron Rodgers got three years behind Brett Favre. Brett Favre retired. He was like, oh, wait a minute. I want to come back. Uh, Sorry, we kind of already handed over the keys to the Maserati to 12. So, uh, four, you're going to New York. See ya. Time's a flat circle. Now Aaron Rodgers is a New York Jet. He's wearing his college number, which is weird. But that's because he's not going to wear Joe Namath's number. I mean, come on. Jordan Love waits three years. Much like Aaron Rodgers did when he came in for an injured Brett Favre against the Dallas Cowboys in 2007 and carved up Dallas. 
Jordan Love comes in, nearly creates a miracle comeback against the Philadelphia Eagles. Now he's ready. And all the people that are saying that the Packers are in a rebuilding phase, yeah, that might be true. But we don't know if Jordan Love is going to be good or not. Like when Aaron Rodgers came in, 2008, the Packers went 6-10, and 10, but they were 1-9 in one-score games. Nine of their 10 losses that year came in one-score games. The Packers easily could have been 10-6 and six that year. Jordan Love, if you hear guys talk about him, they believe in him. Aaron Jones believes in him. A.J. Dillon believes in him. His receivers believe in him. And when you look at the guys that the Packers drafted in the receiving core, again, they didn't pick a receiver in the first round, but they got a guy from Michigan State that's an absolute stud punt returner. They've got Watson. They've got Romeo Dobbs. They got tight end depth, finally. I think there's hope. It might be false hope. I don't think the Packers are going to win the division, but they're at least going to make a push for a wild card spot. Got to get in another break. NHL free agency talk, offseason talk, right after this. Welcome back to The Score with Brett Wiseman here on TobaccoRoadSportsRadio.com. On the score is Brett Wiseman. Welcome back to Sports Radio. Back to SportsRadio.com. Fourteen seventy WWBG AM Greensboro. We're here every Saturday morning across all our various platforms. Now again, as you can see behind me, I do enjoy hockey, and I am a fan of the St. Louis Blues. Well, they had monopoly, like one monopoly dollar for salary cap space this offseason. They've done what they could with it, but. That's not even close to uh, the biggest story of this NHL offseason. The big story here in North Carolina, of course, the Carolina Hurricanes and what they might do with their cap room. Again, they're still aggressively pursuing Eric Carlson from the San Jose Sharks. We thought they signed Vladimir Tarasenko, who's pictured behind me, on the top left-hand side of that poster. We thought they signed him. They didn't. They made a lot of other really, really good moves. They shore up the blue line. They bring in Dmitry Orlov. Great signing. They add some depth. They add some more muscle at the forward spot. Get a couple of more fourth-line grinders there. They re-sign both goaltenders. Good move. And you've still got Kachekov. In the AHL, in case one of those guys goes down, Kachekov maybe not officially NHL ready at this point, but you've got him there in case anything happens to Auntie Ronta and Freddie Anderson. Hurricanes made a lot of great moves. A lot of them were re-signings, uh, and they went out and got really good pieces to add in. When you look at the team overall, it is nearly impossible, for to me at least, to say that the Hurricanes aren't a Stanley Cup contender right now. They've been a Cup contender the last three years, but they made improvements at certain areas. 
this offseason. They shored up the blue line. They added some more grit and some more muscle, which they certainly could have used against a team that was all grit and muscle in the Florida Panthers. They go out and they, they saw that need immediately, and they went out and shored it up. Speaking of shoring up a need for grit and muscle, Toronto Maple Leafs, who were also knocked out of the playoffs by, uh, wait for it, the Florida Panthers, who played a game of, uh, wait for it, uh, grit and muscle. I've said it on this show a bunch, and I'll say it again. You look at that poster right there. The St. Louis Blues won that Stanley Cup in 2019. The Washington Capitals won their Stanley Cup in 2018. The Tampa Bay Lightning won back-to-back Stanley Cups. All with one really key goal in mind. Now, Florida didn't win the Stanley Cup with this MO, but that's because they were out MO'd with their own MO by Vegas. Vegas won the Stanley Cup this way. When you combine skill with physicality, grit, muscle, tenacity, hard forecheck, full 200-foot game of hockey, you get teams like the St. Louis Blues. You get teams like the Washington Capitals in 2018 the 2020 and then the 2021 Tampa Bay Lightning, the 2022-23 Colorado Avalanche, 2023 Vegas Golden Knights, and Florida Panthers. You have your skill guys, and then you have your grit and your muscle guys. The thing with the Toronto Maple Leafs, they finally won a first round. Oh my goodness. Took you long enough. Then they get to the second round, And they get knocked out in five games. Because they don't have a Matthew Kachuk. They don't have a Rocco Gudis. They don't have a Nick Foligno. They don't have a Ryan Reeves. The last two guys I just mentioned are now Toronto Maple Leafs. Clear as day. Toronto saw a need to go out and get some help in in the physical forward department. They did it. Credit to them. That's what they needed. But now they've got to decide what they're going to do with Mitch Marner, Austin Matthews, William Nylander, and this core of high-priced, skill-based forwards. Naturally, you can bring in guys like Felino and Ryan Reeves on team-friendly deals, and they did. Really, really cheap deals considering the caliber of the players that they signed. Now you've got to think about all right, we got to get trying to get Austin Matthews on an extension here before he hits the open market. We've got to get Nylander locked away. We've got to get Marner locked away. Uh, you only have cap space for so many guys. Somebody from the group of Matthews, Nylander, Marner, and Tavares, one of those four is not going to be a member of the Toronto Maple Leafs after this season. It can't work. The way the, sal- the salary cap's going up, yes. But the kind of money that one, all four of those guys are going to command, you can't afford to pay all four of them. You could afford to pay three of them. 
So you can pay a whole line, 80% of your salary cap, because that's what it's going to take. But you're not going to be able to put a fourth one below those guys in your lineup. You're not going to be able to afford to do it, period. You could circumvent the salary cap any way you'd like to. It's not going to work, period. End of discussion. They can't afford to do it. They just can't. There were a lot of moves uh, in NHL free agency that maybe were surprising, uh, maybe that weren't. Not as surprising as uh, Johnny Goudreau going to the Columbus Blue Jackets last summer. This summer, a a few that were uh, of note. Ryan O'Reilly goes to the Nashville Predators. Now, the Predators have kind of undergone a sort of overhaul here. They buy out Matt Duchesne. They buy out some other veteran guys. They bring in another veteran guy in Ryan O'Reilly. It's a Predators team that sold at the trade deadline last year and then finished just a handful of games out of a playoff spot. So they were pretty aggressive in terms of the moves that they made. I think they've done a really good job. They've built a really good team in what's going to be, as always, a competitive central division. Minnesota didn't make a ton of changes in that division either. They shouldn't have. Then you look at the Chicago Blackhawks. And naturally, I'm not a huge fan of them, considering the decor behind me. A lot of Maybe not diehard or passionate hockey fans heard about this Connor Bedard guy. Saw he was going to the Chicago Blackhawks. Greatest thing since sliced bread kind of thing. He is. I'm not doubting that or denying that. I'm not denying how great the kid is. He's going to be one of the, one of the greatest players in this era, if not ending up all time. It doesn't automatically make the Chicago Blackhawks a contender. Oh, but they traded for Taylor Hall. Taylor Hall's really good. Taylor Hall was brought in for one thing and one thing only. See Andy Dalton for reference. He was brought in to mentor and protect Connor Bedard on the ice and off the ice. The NHL... Usually the only guys that see the NHL right away and skip the minors or skip juniors are the guys that are picked in the top two or three. So, Connor Bedard is going to make the team out of training camp. He's not going to the AHL. He's starting the season with the Chicago Blackhawks. Now they go out. They get Taylor Hall. They're able to add some depth around Bedard as well. But the team is still two to three years away from being competitive. There is no Patrick Kane. There is no Jonathan Tapes. There is no Duncan Keith. There is no Brent Seabrook. There is no one left 
from the dynasty, so to speak, of the Chicago Blackhawks in the mid-2010s. There is no one left. As soon as the Blackhawks got the number one spot in the lottery, season tickets went through the roof. Because your mentality as a Chicago sports fan is that you're automatically going to be good at that point. But that's why their IQs are a little bit lower than some other people's. The Blackhawks might not finish in last place this year. Could be Winnipeg. Probably going to be Arizona since they're in the Central Division now. So they might not finish in last place. Congratulations. You'll finish next to last or two spots from the seller of the Central Division. Because in the National Hockey League, you don't just draft one guy, and he, regardless of how good he is, you don't draft one guy, he automatically fixes every single problem you had. Sorry. Hate to break it to you. Connor Bedard doesn't automatically fix all the other 7,000 different issues that you had from this rebuild that you went into. It doesn't work like that. The Blackhawks are on a cup contender because they drafted Connor Bedard. If you think that, you don't know hockey, period. Sorry, I said it. The overall landscape of the league from the moves that were made this summer looks a lot like it did last summer. And this is a sport that prides itself with how aggressive and how tight the salary cap is in the NHL that prides itself and encourages parity. We're going to have a lot more of that this season. Columbus Blue Jackets, my opinion, they made the wrong decision by not picking, uh, or excuse me, Anaheim Ducks made the wrong decision by not picking Adam Fantilli, but we'll see how that shakes out. There could be some surprises uh, along the way when you look at a lot of the moves that were made. I expected the Edmonton Oilers to do a lot more in free agency. I expected the New York Islanders to do a ton more in free agency. And as we sit right now, there's no telling. You've got your handful of contenders right now. You're always going to look at Colorado. You're always going to look at Carolina as contenders. You're going to look at Edmonton as a contender to come out of the Pacific, maybe not make it to the cup final. You've got Vegas, who won the cup. You're always going to look at them. You've got to look at Florida. You've got to look at Tampa. So there's, I don't know, maybe five or six teams, like a quarter of the league. Or a sixth of the league, I guess. You got like six out of 32 teams you can really trust right now to be cup contenders. And when you look at all the free agents that are left on the board right now, Patrick Kane, still unsigned. Vladimir Tarasenko, still unsigned. There is a laundry list of high-caliber NHL players who have won Stanley Cups, like Tarasenko, who are still unsigned free agents. I won't bore you by reading the whole list, but just go look at the list. All I need to tell you is that Patrick Kane and Vladimir Tarasenko are on that list of guys that have not signed yet. And that will tell you the caliber of said list. There is a lot that can still happen this offseason in the NHL. 
that could completely change the landscape of where things look once we get to October. Eric Carlson could either be a Pittsburgh Penguin or he could be a Carolina Hurricane at any point in time. That trade is going to happen at some point. It's a matter of how much salary does this, do the San Jose Sharks want to retain and what Pittsburgh or Carolina wants to give up. There's a lot of trades that still need to happen. You look at the St. Louis Blues. They are crowded on their blue line. They have eight defensemen with one-way contracts, which means somebody has got to go one way out of St. Louis. It's just not going to work the way it's currently constructed. Somebody's got to be traded. If not free agent signings, there are still plenty of trades that could happen. There's been a lot of signing trades that have happened uh, that are that of a high caliber. Uh, Pierre-Luc Dubois going from uh, Los, a- or Los Angeles to or Columbus to Los Angeles. Alex Ayafalo going the other way in return. There's a lot that could still happen in this NHL offseason. And all I need to tell you is that Patrick Kane and Vladimir Tarasenko have not signed anywhere. And once those two dominoes drop, every other high-caliber free agent behind them and every big-time trade piece, when those two giant dominoes fall, everything else is going to follow suit. All right, we got to get out of here. Uh, great to be back here on Tobacco Road Sports Radio. Remember, we're here every Saturday morning here on Tobacco Road Sports Radio and WWBG 1470 AM. For our producer, Desmond Johnson, I am Brett Wiseman. So long. Have a great sports weekend.